Somebody came to Karl Barth, the great 20th century theologian. They said, all right, you've spent your life studying. What's the greatest truth you've discovered? And he replied, Jesus loves me, this I know. There is no greater truth. What you and I are about to plunge into will have to bottom line on that shining and resplendent affirmation. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me. And because it does, we go. Pray with me as we plunge into today's teaching. Holy Father, that is the greatest truth. What, what truth could su- supersede that simple childhood confession? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible has told me so. May the love of Christ, even in this teaching today, may it shine with all its glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Only in America could a story like this happen. I'm grateful to my friend Ferdy Weber, who spotted this story and shared it with me. True story. Dateline. Charlotte, North Carolina. This is a big weekend for the Weber tribe with Kim getting married. I want to read this to you. It's just a short piece. By the way, this story won first place in last year's Criminal Lawyers Award contest. All right? Just a short piece. Charlotte, North Carolina. A lawyer purchased a box of very rare and expensive cigars. Big mistake number one. Then insured them against, among other things, fire. Within a month, having smoked his entire stockpile of these great cigars, the lawyer filed a claim against the insurance company. In his claim, the lawyer stated that the cigars were lost in a series of small fires. The insurance company refused to pay, citing the obvious reason that the man had consumed the cigars in the normal fashion. The lawyer sued and won. Now there's more. Hold on. Delivering the ruling, the judge agreed with the insurance company that the claim was frivolous. The judge stated, nevertheless, that the lawyer held a policy from the company in which it had warranted that the cigars were insurable and also guaranteed that it would insure them against fire without defining what is considered to be unacceptable fire and was therefore obligated to pay, to pay the claim. Ra- hold on. Rather than endure a lengthy and costly appeal process, the insurance company accepted the ruling and paid $15,000 to the lawyer for his loss of the cigars that perished in the fires. All right. Now, now, after the lawyer cashed the check, the insurance company had him arrested on 24 counts of arson. (laughs) With, 
with his own insurance claim and testimony from the previous case being used against him. The lawyer was convicted of intentionally burning the, his insured property and was sentenced to 24 months in jail and a $24,000 fine. <laughs> do you, question, do you suppose it's as messed up as this in heaven's courtroom? Heaven has a courtroom? Oh, yes, it does. I want to take you to the very heart of that courtroom right now. Last week as we began this new series entitled The Temple, we looked at three, only three of them, descriptor passages of that temple. It's actually the throne room. We're going to go back to one of them and spend our time, all our time in that one. Open your Bible with me, please, to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. A breathtaking, dramatic portrayal. You've got to see it for yourself. If you didn't bring your own Bible, grab the Pew Bible in front of you. You will want to follow along. It'll be page 602 in your Pew Bible. I'm going to be in the New International Version right here. Daniel chapter 7. You're finding the book of Daniel? Daniel chapter 7. Stunning portrayal. Watch this. Daniel chapter 7. Let's pick it up, please, in verse 9. As I looked. Daniel's in vision. As I looked. Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. That's the Almighty Himself. His throne was flaming with fire, and His wheels were all ablaze. Verse 10, a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before Him. Thousands upon thousands attended Him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before Him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Ladies and gentlemen, if you read nothing else but those two verses, there are three obviouslys that I wish to draw to your attention right now. If nothing else, you would know, obviously, these three are true. Take your study guide out at this very moment and let's put those, let's jot those, what I'm calling the obviouslys, the three obviouslys. Let's jot them down right now. Thank you, ushers, for making sure that everybody here gets that study guide. Hold your hand up if you didn't get a study guide when you came in. It's in your worship bulletin, but if you can't find it, hold your hand up. You're in the balcony. Overflow. Ask for the study guide. And those of you who are watching on television, we're delighted to have you. You can have the same study guide. We are just embarking on a brand new series called The Temple. This is part two. I'll put it on the screen for you because you need our website. This is part two entitled God on the Docket. Now, do you see the website on the screen? www.pmchurch.tv. Go to that website, please. The banner will introduce you to the new series, The Temple. You're looking for part two where it says study guide. You click on, you'll have the same study guide. We're ready to go. Everybody have a study guide? Three obviouslys. That's all. If you just read the few sentences we've read, you know, obviously, number one, this is a court scene. Jot it down. Obviously, number one, this is a court scene. The language is unmistakable. The court is convened. Evidentiary books and records are being examined. You don't have to be a Perry Mason rerun enthusiast to know this is a court scene. Obviously, number two, write it down, please. The court is convened in God's temple. All right? He is clearly shown 
seated on his throne. And as we noted last week, God's throne always appears in his temple or palace or what we ended up calling it last week, mission control. We know it's in his temple. And obviously, number three, the court is convened before, key word, before the end of the world. If we had taken the time to read the entire chapter of Daniel 7, we would have noted that Daniel is, is tracing the prophetic history. He starts with a mighty Babylonian empire, boom, 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 and he ends up with a superpower, a religio-political superpower at the end of time. And then the world ends. In fact, let me just show this to you. Drop down here in chapter 7. Drop down to verse 26. But the court will sit. All right, so there's this court at the end of time. The court will sit and his power, the superpower's power, will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Now notice what follows, verse 27. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom is to be everlasting and so on and so on. The end of earth's history as we know it. So we know. As you just jotted down, obviously the court is convened before the end of the world. And as we will examine in another teaching in this series, strong biblical evidence indicates that the court is already in session as you and I are talking. I'm talking and you're listening right here, right now. I.e., what we just read in Daniel 7 is taking place. Can't see it, but it's happening. We're going to consider that evidence that will lead us to the conclusion there is no period in human history as heavily fraught with quiet urgency as this one. Whatever's going on up there has eternal consequences for your life and mine. It can no longer be on this planet business as usual. All right? Three obviously uncontestable. Now let me read that scene again with you. Just to have it fresh in our minds, go back to uh, verse 9, Daniel 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. Verse 10, a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Who are the key players in this celestial courtroom drama? Jot them down now when we're through with number five. I'm out of here. Five key players in this celestial courtroom drama. Number one, jot it down, please. The Ancient of Days, slash God the Father, slash capital J Judge. I'll give you just an extra moment to write that down. That is key player number one. This is his temple. This is his throne room. And clearly, he takes his seat. When he takes his seat, court is in session. It's been convened. All right? Key player number one, the Ancient of Days. Key player number two, jot it down, please, the celestial observers. We'll call them the jury. Would you write that down, please? The celestial observers, the jury. As we, as we noted last week, both Daniel and John are shown this massive number in vision. The number is not literal. They, they're trying to communicate that it is so huge, this temple, that hundreds of millions of angels can encircle the throne and there's still room. That's the point. The jury is there. 
Key player number three in this celestial courtroom drama. Jot it down, please. The protagonist. Now, you're going to have to get the spelling, so look at the screen. The protagonist. It's a word we don't use much at all. So I'm going to put a slash and go ahead and write in, Son of Man. You know, you know who a protagonist is? He's the hero. The main man. The number one player in the story. We've got a protagonist right here. You want to see him in, this, in the chapter? Drop down to verse 13. You got your Bible open there in Daniel 7, verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Verse 14. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men and women of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Son of Man. Would you jot this down, please? Of all the titles Jesus could have chosen to be a self-descriptor in the Gospels, this is the title he uses more than any other. Write it down. Son of Man is his number one preferred self-title. And guess what? Guess where he got the title? In fact, I want to show this to you. At his own rump court. Kangaroo trial. All right? So that they can, have, they can come up with legal precedent to execute him. At his own trial, as he's being cross-examined, look at this, Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, but Jesus remained silent under cross-examination. So the high priest, the judge there, said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. You tell us. You tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes. Here he comes now. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you in this courtroom... In the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds. Coming on the clouds of heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a direct verbatim snip and stuck in his testimony. He got it straight out of Daniel chapter 7. I am that Son of Man. You'll see me one day. Oh my, I tell you what, there is no question that the protagonist, the hero of the heavenly courtroom is the Son of Man. In fact, I just love this. Let me just give, let me show you how central Jesus is to the court judgment going on right now, by the way. How central is He? Watch this. Would you just jot these down, please? How central is the heavenly hero? Number one, He is the protagonist. Now, you already have that, but you need to put it again so that you can run this list by somebody else. Number one, He is the protagonist. Number two, He's the protagonist for all. Number two, he is the defense attorney for the condemned. He's the defense attorney for the condemned. Uh, let's look at that verse at the end of that sentence. That's 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, this aged pastor writing to his congregations, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, I have some good news for you. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The, the New King James says, the advocate. What's an advocate? He's the defense attorney. Now, you didn't follow the, the uh, hearings for S Supreme Court Justice Sotomayor this summer because you were busy working. But I followed a few of them. When she was being grilled by the Senate where she had the hearings, they asked her... Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself. And so she told them, when I was a girl growing up in New York City, I watched Perry Mason. And watching Perry Mason 
put a love in my heart to become the prosecutor I became. And one of the new, new senators, Al Franken, who just got uh, uh, voted in, he said, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, judge. Don't you know that Perry Mason is a defense attorney and you became a prosecutor? Well, everybody got a little chuckle out of that. And by the way, Franken said, I'm a Perry Mason fan. And do you know that of all the cases the great defense attorney Perry Mason tried on television, he only lost one? Well, isn't that something? Only lost one. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a defense attorney in the courtroom of eternity right now. How many do you suppose he has lost? Read my lips. Zero. He's even better than Perry Mason. <laughs> All right, who is the hero? Who is this hero of the heavenly sanctuary? He's number one. He's the protagonist. Number two, he's the defense attorney. Jot this down. Number three, he's the savior for the condemned. The prisoner sitting in the docket. This in the dock. This is the savior. In fact, let's just read the next verse. First John two two. He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know, the stories came out of the Civil War. We've had them out of every, practically every era of Earth's history. You know, somebody fell asleep on sentry duty. He's, he's, he's been condemned to be shot, and somebody else steps forward. We have, it out of, we have a priest in, uh, in Auschwitz in World War II who did the same. He stepped forward and said, kill me instead. That's the picture of this hero of heaven who steps in and says, I'll pay the penalty. I'll take it. Let him go. I'm telling you what. He's the protagonist because he's the main man. He's the heavenly hero to the max. All right, what is he? He's the protagonist. He is the defense attorney. He is the savior. He is the mediator. Would you write this one down too, please? He is the mediator slash High priest. Because you'll read Old Testament language in the both Testaments. High priest is a mediator. It's one who goes between to God. So, he's mediator slash high priest. A friend of mine got in trouble with the law. I took him down to the courthouse here in Berrien County. He was behind in his child support. And then I learned about another person in the courtroom that I'd never known about. The judge summoned... When uh, my friend was called forward, the judge summoned, I want the friend of the court to come. I want to tell you something. They have a person who serves as a friend of the court. She is never the friend. <laughs> if you're behind in uh, child support. She's not your friend. She's the friend of your wife. Could the friend of the court please come forward? What's been happening here? Jesus is the court-appointed friend for the human race. He's the high priest. He's a mediator. Oh, by the way, let's, let's look at these two texts. Uh, Hebrews 4.14, put it on the screen. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Okay, so he's... And this is my favorite of the favorites in Hebrews 7.25. You've got to mark this in your Bible sometime. Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them, for you and for me. Hallelujah. You got a friend in court. He's the friend of the court. He is the protagonist. He's the defense attorney. He's the savior. He's the mediator. He's the high priest. And finally, you're not going to believe this. He is also the judge. He's the judge. Watch this. Jesus is speaking one day in John 5, and he makes this astounding statement. John 5, 22. 
Jesus speaking, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Dwight, you just said the Ancient of Days is the judge. We, we got another judge now. By the way, that's not such a great conundrum. We have multiple judges in many courtrooms across the land. So don't be all Twitter-pated. But jot this down, please. Here's, here's how we make the distinction. Even though the Ancient of Days is shown as the presiding judge of the heavenly judgment, Christ is declared to be the ruling judge. Many courts have more than one judge. Jesus is the judge. Can you see why? Look at this guy. Look, it's, tell me how this works. If you're, let's say you had, you, you had to go to court and you have a defense attorney. If your defense attorney is also your judge, how do you think the case is going to turn out? That's a no-brainer. You win every time. If the defense attorney is your judge, you win hands down. I'm telling you what. No wonder he's the hero. No wonder every song they write has him in it. He's the great protagonist. The heavenly hero. And by the way, in case you're thinking, yeah, boy, it's a good thing we got Jesus up there because I know how mad the Father is at me. May I disabuse you of that? Would you jot this verse down? Jot it right in the margin of your study guide. I'll put it on the screen for you. John chapter 16, verse 26. Jesus, just before he was executed, spoke these words. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I am not saying that I will ask the Father. I'm not going to go to the Father on your behalf. Why not, Lord? No. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I'm telling you what. Whether it's the presiding judge or the ruling judge, I've got very good news for you. You don't have to be afraid of the judge. He's already on your side. Five key players in the celestial drama of heaven's courtroom that is going on right now. While we're sitting here scribbling down little fill-in-the-blank stuff, it's going on. It's going on right now. Okay, what do we have? Who are the key players? We have the Ancient of Days. We have the Celestial Observers of the Jury. We have the Protagonist. Guess what? We have number four, the Antagonist. Write it down, please. The Antagonist. That would be Satan. Satan. The Antagonist. What's an Antagonist? An Antagonist is an opponent, plain and simple. For a defendant in court, by the way, if you're in court, I want you to just know this in case you ever go to court. The prosecuting attorney is never your friend. He's the guy, she's the woman, boom, 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 trying to find every piece of evidence to take you down. That's why the prosecuting attorney in Daniel 7 is the antagonist. You say, is he really there? Oh, he's here. <laughs> take a look at uh, verse 25. Daniel 7, 25. Here's the antagonist. He, this antagonist, will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws, and the saints will be handed over to him for a bunch of time. He is their antagonist. Who's that antagonist? Well, this obviously, this evil power in Daniel 7 is a, is a little puppet. There's an antagonist behind this superpower. There's an antagonist pulling the strings. Who's this antagonist? I'll take you to one other dramatic court scene. This may be one of the most dr dramatic. Keep your finger right here because we're coming right back. But I'm go to the Bible, the, the, the Old Testament's next to the last book, Zechariah. All right, so Malachi ends the Old Testament, but go to Zechariah just before Malachi. 
And if you have the Pew Bible, that would be page 637. Oh, this, this, is, this is high drama in the courtroom. Watch this. Zechariah chapter 3. We'll start right at the top. I'll just read the, a few lines here, but you'll get the picture very quickly. You'll know who the antagonist is without being on the shadow of a doubt. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he, God, showed me. So Zechariah is in vision as well. Nobody goes to God's throne room. There is no human being that has ever been to God's throne room that's here on earth. It has to go through vision. They're shown. Okay, so he showed me. He showed me Joshua, the high priest. Now, that's a religious leader in Zechariah's own community at the time. So forget about Joshua. He's a representative of all of us messed up human sinners, speaking of you and me. All right, so he represents us. Watch this. So he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, somebody else is there. And Satan. Now, wait a minute. Hold on. That's not a proper name. That's Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it's little s, Satan. It means the accuser. In fact, if you have a modern translation, it's footnoted and you see at the bottom, the accuser. We turned it into a name. We, took, we transliterated the Hebrew directly into English. And now we've called him Satan for millennia. But he's the Satan. He's the accuser. So I see this Joshua standing beside the angel of the Lord. And on the other side of him, Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now verse 3. Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes. Which, by the way, is how you and I are dressed. If we're depending on ourselves, and God with... X-ray vision sees the condition of our hearts and we're dependent on ourselves. That's exactly what it looks like to the whole courtroom. You're showing up in filthy rags. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Verse 3, Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as a sinner standing there before the angel. Verse 4, And the angel said, I love this, the angel said in the courtroom to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. Isn't that great? I'll take off those rags and I'll cover you. Ooh, spotless. Who's the antagonist? No question in our book. The fallen Lucifer... For who he truly is has just been exposed, Zechariah 3. In fact, would you jot it down, please? He's the little s, Satan, the Hebrew. Or, capital A, accuser of the human race. Write that down. He is your accuser. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not mistake this. He is not your friend. He is not... If you ever get into a little tussle with him, a little bit of debate, and and he's kind of saying, hey, come on, boy, come on, boy, get into conversation with him. He is never, ever, ever on your side. He longs for nothing more than your immediate destruction. The fact that you and I are still alive is because there's somebody in this universe who's keeping us alive. We'd We'd have been dead long ago. He's not your friend. You can never, I don't care what he tells you, never trust him. With that offer, never trust him for that offer. May I share something very intriguing? This is amazing to me. From this courtroom scene with key player number four, the antagonist now introduced. You think about this. In fact, jot it down, please. The antagonist began his civil war against God's kingdom 
in God's temple slash sanctuary. It all started right next to the throne of God. It was the highest created being in the universe. That's where the Civil War started. It started in the sanctuary. It started in God's temple. And when the accuser... And by the way, he began his diabolical career of accusing... Who who was he accusing? Humans? No. God. He started his career accusing God. When the accuser and his sympathizers were tossed out of heaven, out of the temple, you're out of the sanctuary. In fact, you're out of this whole kingdom. And they came down here. They ended up on this planet and got voted into this planet by our first parents. When that happened, you can be certain that ever since his defeat in heaven, Satan has turned his withering fire on the truth about God's temple, on the truth about God's sanctuary in heaven. Do you know why? I'll tell you why. Jot it down. Because if Satan can destroy the truth about God's temple, he can defeat the influence of God's throne. That's why. Destroy. Destroy the truth about a temple in heaven. Destroy the truth about a sanctuary above. Get it out. Demolish it. You think I'm making this up? Watch this. See those little verses that are tagged on at the end of that line? I'll put the verses on the screen. Daniel chapter 8, verse 11. Speaking of the antagonist, capital A antagonist, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary, he's going for the sanctuary, cast down. That's all he wants. Destroy the temple. Let me give you another one, showing that it's in the New Testament as well. Revelation 13, verse 6. Then he... The antagonist opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle. Trust me, that's the temple sanctuary, the courtroom in heaven. He blasphemed even his tabernacle. Blasphemed it. Oh, mercy. Ladies and gentlemen, it ought to be clear to you and me that Satan will ever turn his venomous fury Against the temple. Now listen very carefully. Any Bible teaching, any Bible teaching that takes the reader of the Bible, the student of the Bible, and sweeps that seeker up to God's throne room, any Bible teaching about the heavenly sanctuary will immediately receive his unabated wrath. Destroy it. Destroy it. Oh, well, that's helpful to find out. I'm glad, I'm glad for, that, for that little observation. Now I can understand what's going on. Yeah, it makes sense to me now. I see it. I learned that an antagonist against the Bible teaching of God's sanctuary showed up this summer not far from this campus in a town nearby and attempted to draw a crowd to his lectures. Not very many came. I was on sabbatical. But one who did go told me and described the ridicule and laughter that was heaped on the Bible teaching of the temple in heaven. How utterly sad to play into the hands of the capital A accuser. 
to become unwittingly an antagonist of the very truth, now listen carefully, of the very truth that has the Son of Man embedded in its soul. If I were Lucifer, if I were Satan, I'd go after that truth with hook, claw, and fang and crush it. I would. So anybody comes to you, say, hey boy, you probably haven't heard this. Girl, let me tell you this. It's not there. There's no big thing happening up there. No big deal. Forget it, forget it, forget it. Anybody who comes and tells you that, just remember, just remember the capital A antagonist who's calling the shots to destroy the sanctuary. No wonder. What is this? Revelation, what is this? Revelation chapter 12, verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But look out, earth. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. Why should we be afraid? He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Raise him up. Raise up, little a antagonists. Raise them up. Destroy. Destroy that truth. Five key players. We end now with number five. Ancient of days, celestial observers of jury, protagonist, son of man, antagonist, Satan. Finally, number five. I'll sit down at the end of this. Number five, would you write it down, please? The defendants slash accused slash holy people. And I put that in quotation marks because the, today's New International Version actually calls them that in this chapter 7. Go back. We'll end in Daniel 7. Go back to chapter 7. Who are these people? Take a look. You're back to uh, chapter 7. Your finger found the place. Drop down to verse 21. As I watched in this vision, this horn, all right, the antagonist, was waging war against the saints. And the TNIV renders it the holy people. All right? The people that are holy gods. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the, the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Obviously, the secondary object of the antagonist or the accuser, because, question, can Satan physically tear God off his throne? Yes or no? He can't go. He's gone. Adios. He can never go back. So what does a weak despot always do? If you can't get at the source of power anywhere on earth, you kill the children. It's happening today. You kill the children. If you're weak and you can't get to the power, kill the children. Obviously, his secondary object is the friends of God. And therein lies this very intriguing truth. And I need you to write it down, please. Notice this. This struck me. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's true, isn't it? There is no mention of the wicked slash unrighteous. I'll give you a second to write both of those down. Whatever you want to call them. There is no record... No mention of the wicked slash unrighteous in the divine courtroom because no one disputes their choice of Satan as Lord. It's not up for debate. Okay, so let's say I'm getting a Ph.D. at Andrews University and I'm getting a Ph.D. in sports. Do they have, a, do they have a, any Ph.D. in sports here? Probably not, huh? Are we into sports at all here? Okay, we don't do too bad, do we? We only play ourselves. Okay. Guys, 
Let's say I'm getting a Ph.D. in sports, and I want to study Boston Red Sox fans. You know, it's the baseball season. So I want to study in my Ph.D. research Boston Red Sox fans. Whom am I going to interview? If I come along, I'm just going through the crowd, and I come along to a Yankee fan. What am I going to do with that Yankee fan? Get out of here. I don't want to even talk to you. We already know you're a Yankee fan. We're not concerned with what you think about anything because you're a Yankee fan. I only want to get a hold of Boston Red Sox fans and interview them. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what's happening in the courtroom above. There's no point. Why do we need to, why do we need to interview these people? They've already chosen Satan as Lord. What's, what's not to know? That's why they're not mentioned. They're nowhere in that courtroom. In fact, would you write this down, please? The heavenly judgment focuses instead on all throughout history who have declared their loyalty to God. I want Boston Red Sox fans to talk to, please. Yankees, out. And that's, that's, the, that's what's happening, by the way, with the story of Job. Remember the story of Job? <laughs> the, the accuser comes along. He does this with you and me. He says, hey, God. You think this guy's yours? Do you, really, do you really think this guy is your friend? I mean, what did he do on the night of Gethsemane? What did he do on the night of Gethsemane? He says, hey, listen, Jesus, these are, the, these are supposed to be the 11 closest human beings on earth to you? Tell me what's going on now. They're not praying with you. They're sleeping. How many times has that line gotten play in the universe? They're not friends with you. They're sleeping when they're supposed to be praying. Nobody cares about you. They're not your friends. In fact, one of them's already betrayed you. The other guy's going to deny you in just a few moments. That's what Satan does. He did it with God and Job. I think this guy likes you. I'll tell you why Job is your friend. Because you put this little circle around him and you keep blessing him and blessing him and blessing him. I'm telling you what, God, you take away that circle, remove your divine protection. He will spit in your face and curse you in the end. That's what's happening. And he does it with everyone who claims to be a friend of God's. You think he is? And God says, all right. Listen, I've heard enough of this. You want to see? Let's find out. Bring all, the, bring all the records of those who said they're my friends. Bring them all out. Let's find out if the accuser is right. I have no friends on this earth. You're telling me I have nobody on this earth that's loyal to me? Bring them out. Let's take a look. Ladies and gentlemen, that, that's the reality. And that's why you read Daniel 7, verse 10. The court was seated and the books were opened. Oh, good. God has to open the books because He needs to jog His memory. Let's see. What was she like? Oh, I, can, I, I, I can't put the face, but I remember the name. Is that what's going on? Are you kidding? Never forget this text for the rest of your life. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Jot it down. The Lord knows. The Lord knows those who are His. You can inscribe that in stone. God, not, God needs no judgment to satisfy His own curiosity. The records are not for Him. They are for everyone else who wonders. You know what? Maybe this accuser has a point. I've been watching that guy down there. I'm not sure I'd want to let him into this kingdom forever and ever. We better check it out. The records are not for God. He already knows. Instead, God orders a divine audit, a heavenly audit of every record human being who has professed loyalty to God. He says, pull all the books out. Go over them carefully. Tell me, do I have any friends on this planet? 
He's saying, Dwight, but please. Is there nothing for, for the Hitlers and the Paul Potts, the evil and wicked of this life? The serial killers? No judgment for them? Oh, nobody said that, my friend. Get it down. In your, get it in your heart. There will be a day of accounting for every human being who has walked this planet. Don't you worry. God will settle the accounts one day. But in this dramatic celestial courtroom right now, none of them is there. Because the accuser has said, you got nobody that's loyal to you, really loyal to you on this planet. So God says, okay, open the records. Investigate. Investigate the evidence. You know, some, somewhere along the way, somebody said, you know, I've heard people say, this word investigate, get it out. No, keep it in. What's wrong with investigating? If somebody's bringing charges against you, they investigate the records. What's the problem? The devil's bringing charges. Let's investigate the record. Would you jot this down, please? So the investigative judgment, we'll just call that what's happening right now. So the investigative judgment isn't about a God trying to make up his mind in court, but about a God seeking to defend his friends in court. And there's a world of difference. You're going to say, well, I've got to decide. Do I save him or not? No, none of that's taking place. The Paul, the Paul Potts and the Hitlers, they'll have their day. But judgment has to start somewhere. And in fact... How can you argue with what you are about to read? This is about as clear as it is in my humble little estimation. May I run three texts by you? And there are a score more where these came from. Let me run these by you. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. The Word of God is absolutely clear. It is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. It doesn't begin with those Yankee fans. We know where they stand. We begin with our fans here. It begins with the family of God. Write that down. Number two, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we, Paul is writing to a Christian church, we must all as Christians appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Did I make that up? Was that uh, somehow a typographical error? It is there. And text number three, Hebrews 10, verse 30. The Lord will judge His people. New Testament. And there's a handful out of the Old Testament as well. What's going on here, ladies and gentlemen? Is God hoping somehow I've got to lose these? Are you kidding? God is proving that He can save them forever and ever. These are mine. These are mine. I told you I had friends. That's what it's about. Yeah, but I thought Jesus said, come on, didn't Jesus say somewhere, you know, if you accept me as Savior, you don't, you'll never come into judgment. Oh, yes, he said something like that, but that's a mistranslation of the Greek, and that's what's caused that little bit of consternation. Let me show you. And the NIV caught the mistake and carefully corrected it. Let me put it on the screen for you. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus speaking. I tell you the truth, and by the way, in the Greek, that's amen, amen. Double amen always means sit up, boy. Listen to this. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. You see, the Greek word can be translated condemnation or judgment. The NIV had the choice. They said, which way shall we go? But they said, how could it be that God's friends will not come into judgment because we just read the text where it says they will come into judgment. So they made the choice. Nope, it has to be condemned here. That's the point. See? It isn't that God's friends' lives won't be examined in the divine judgment. They will be thanks to the, thanks to the accuser. He's the guy that's doing this. It's that their lives won't be condemned in the divine judgment thanks to the Savior. Romans 8.1. Can you say it with me? Therefore, 
There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? No condemnation. When you're in Christ, no condemnation. Anybody comes along and tells you, hey boy, hey girl, this is really bad news. This, this Bible teaching is bad news. Better drop it. Better just forget it. You just repeat after, you just repeat after Scripture. No, it's not bad news at all. There's no condemnation. No condemnation. In Christ Jesus. And by the way, that's why Daniel 7 ends the way it does. And so I'm going to go there and we'll wrap it up. You still have Daniel 7 open? Drop down and read it again. Verse 21. Daniel 7, 21. As I watched this horn, the antagonist was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until... Oh, watch this. Until, verse 22, the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints. Did you catch that? He pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. The divine judgment in the heavenly sanctuary courtroom reaches a verdict. And guess what the verdict is? In favor. In favor. You see, when a Hebrew goes to court, because this Bible is written for the Hebrews. When a Hebrew mind goes to court, he is not concerned with issues of guilt or innocence. The Hebrew mind is not thinking guilt or innocence. You know what she's thinking? She's thinking vindication and exoneration. Write that down. Vindication and exoneration. That's what the Hebrew mind thinks of when it thinks of court and judgment. It's not about guilt and innocence. It's about vindication. In fact, you remember this? Jesus told a parable once about a little old lady. She was a widow. And an adversary was coming against her, trying to... Well, he was trying to take her property. I was trying to say that word, Sarah, what is the word? Serotipus? Huh? Well, forget it. Uh, he, was try, he was trying to sneak. There it is. He was trying to sneak her property away. Illegally. Huh? Illegally. So what'd she do? She doesn't go to the judge and say, oh, judge, guilty or innocent. No, no, no. She runs to the judge and, she, and it turns out, I'm sorry to tell you this, the judge was on the take. All right? She says, oh, judge, I got this adversary. He's trying to sneak my property away from me. You've got to help me, oh, judge. And the judge said, I'll just let this woman continue for a while because one of these days she'll get it, that a little bit of a box she's here, a little bit of payola, and I will deliver her. But she ne- she's too poor. She never paid him. She just kept coming after him. She was bugging him so bad that finally he said to himself, you know what? This woman is driving me to distraction. If I don't get rid of her, I'm going to die. And that's what he did. Took the adversary, says, you're out of here. The law's on this woman's side. See, for a Hebrew, that's all I want in court. Get rid of my adversary. Get rid of him for me. That's what's going on. The judgment is given in favor. In favor of God's friends. Can you understand, ladies and gentlemen, why? Now you know why I'm so excited about this. Can you understand why? This teaching that the antagonist has put all of his withering guns to blow out of the water. Can you understand why this teaching is such good news to the friends of God? Because it's not about guilt and innocence. It's about get him off of my back forever and ever. Amen. God says, okay, okay. I knew I had friends down here that didn't want him and wanted me instead. I told you. I told you they'd be down here. Look at the books. And when I'm through, it's over. It's over. I tell you what. The friends of God know that the divine court is on their side. 
I want you to jot that down deep in your little mind right now. The divine court is on my side. Just say it to yourself. The divine court is on your side. It's on my side. I mean, you think about it. Everybody in the celestial courtroom. Do you get this? Everybody in the celestial courtroom is pulling for you. Ancient of days, he's for you. Celestial observers, they're all for you. Protagonist, he's for you. He's not only a judge, he's your defense attorney, he's your mediator, he's a friend of the court. He's everybody, and he's pulling for you. In fact, I understand that even one of them in the courtroom today has already died for you. I'm telling you what, sister, the good news doesn't get any better than that. And that's why it's called the everlasting gospel. Don't you let them take, don't you let them take the judgment away from you. It's not bad news. They got it all wrong. The truth is, it's the greatest news in the universe because at the heart is the heavenly hero, my main man in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. All you have to do, put your case in His hands. That's it. Put your case in His hands. I'm going to invite you to bow your head right now. And I want to pray with you. I'm going to invite my singers to come out right now as well. While your head is down and you're praying, here's the deal. I'm not going to give an altar call where you come forward. No. The Ancient of Days can read your heart as if there were no other human being in the universe right now. He's reading your mind right now. So here's the deal. Would you please bow your head and close your eyes and let's pray. Dear Father, this is about the best, best news we've heard in a while. It's no wonder the antagonist is desperate to hide this truth and to destroy this teaching. God, you're a lot bigger. The protagonist has already beaten the antagonist on his own ground. And he's our heavenly hero too. And so, Father, we want to respond to this teaching just now. And while your head is still bowed and your eyes and heart lifted up to God, here's the deal. I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand. But I'm going to give you some seconds of quiet. If you would like to tell God that you wish anew to place your case in the nail-scarred hands of your hero and Savior. Tell Him right now. You may never have given your life to Jesus before. Ah, oh, there have been times when you thought about it, you put it off. Now I'm not even going to ask you to get up and identify yourself. That's okay. In the quiet of your heart right now, tell, tell the defense attorney, who's the judge and the friend of the court, tell him, I'm putting my case in your hands. He's saying, Dwight, I don't know what that means. I want to do something more. You get a hold of me. We'll build this together. But right now, you tell him, I'm putting my case in your hands. And by the way, don't just do it today, tomorrow morning when you awaken. Say, oh, by the way, protagonist, my case is still in your hands. I haven't pulled it out. Today and today and today, keep telling Him. He's your hero. He's your Savior. Back in 1841, born there in Dublin, Ireland, a little girl, Charity Lees Smith. She became a poet. My friend Janine Lim found her words 
She composed this poem at the age of 27. Your age, some of you. She composed this poem. It's on the cover of your bulletin, by the way, so that you can keep this poem as long as you wish. I've asked my friends, our singers, to sing these words for you. And the words will be on the screen. You can follow there. You want to follow on the cover of your bulletin. That's all right. But keep, while they're singing, would you do this? Keep affirming to God your choice to leave your case in His hands. Ladies. Stand with me as we continue to pray. And so, Father, we place our cases 
in those nail-scarred hands. Can't defend ourselves. The accuser is too strong, but our hope is in the hero of that courtroom right now. So hear our prayers. Call us to that choice again and again and again until you finally declare that judgment is now rendered in favor of my friends on earth. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious throne without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory and majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.